0: Well, Revelation reveals, that's what we're continuing on in our study together, this message series uh, that I hope has already been a tremendous blessing to you and an encouragement. Uh, It has been to me, and uh, so we're continuing on in that today, and we will be in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11. That's where we'll be today. And so uh, this time, uh, as we continue on in this journey together through this this incredible book, uh, we're going to be talking about Suffering Smyrna, Suffering Smyrna, the church of Smyrna, and they indeed uh, were a church that knew what it was to suffer. Um, History portrays the city of Smyrna that this church was in as a very, very wealthy and beautiful city. Uh, All kinds of commerce and trade, full of art, full of music, full of science, uh, really everything that the world would look at and say, that's success, that's achievement. Uh, This city had it. In fact, uh, this city, Smyrna, earned the nickname the Glory of Asia. That's what they were known as, called the Glory of Asia. Unfortunately, it was also one of the darkest cities. In Asia Minor. And the reason for that is that along with all their uh, external or physical beauty and appeal, uh, it also was full of extreme idolatry. Every sort of idol you can imagine. All kinds of pagan worship. And it was the first city in the empire to embrace the worship of the emperor as an actual religion. Specifically, Domitian, which is the same emperor that banished and exiled John to Patmos, where he received this revelation, uh, that emperor actually uh, made it a legal requirement to be worshipped as the supreme deity. So uh, among all the pantheon of gods that they had, he said, I want to be the top, I want to be number one, and I'm going to make that a legal requirement. Not only do you, you need to worship the emperor in general, but I want you to worship me specifically as the supreme deity, and he made it law, made it a legal requirement. And he uh, actually made it a requirement that he be given the title of Kyrios, or Lord. And Lord, that title, uh, that means highest king or master. In other words, king of all kings, Lord of all lords, which we know from Scripture that title belongs to and is reserved for one and one alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he took this this title, this divine, supreme title, and he said, "You're, you're going to have to refer to me as that. I want everybody in the empire, it's no longer just Emperor Domitian, I want you to refer to me as the Supreme Lord Domitian. And the church in Smyrna refused to call Domitian or any other human ruler, Kyrios, Lord. They didn't, they didn't give him that title. And they refused to, to give him the worship that he demanded uh, connected to that title because they correctly believed that the title of highest king, Lord of all lords, and all the worship that's connected to that belongs uniquely and exclusively to the Lord Jesus alone. And that is, of course, absolutely right. It's absolutely right. But it was that belief and that faithful stand that resulted in the intense persecution that the Smyrna church experienced in every single area of their lives. And the city of Smyrna's name came from the Greek word used for myrrh. Same same substance, same aromatic spice, that was given to Jesus as a toddler by the wise men, which pointed ahead to his burial. And along with being an expensive perfume or anointing oil, which is what it was also used for, myrrh was commonly used as a a burial or an embalming ointment. And its sweet fragrance was produced by pressing or, or crushing the myrrh trees, branches, and the bark. That's what unleashed the fragrance, the sweet-smelling fragrance. So it's definitely fitting that this church was in a city with that as its name, the, the same name for myrrh, because this church in this city was being crushed by intense persecution, literally to the point of death. And every time that happened, Their faithfulness and their sacrifice was a sweet-smelling fragrance to their true Lord, which he savored. Smyrna was one of only two churches out of the seven that received no rebuke whatsoever from the Lord Jesus. He had only encouragement and praise and positive things to give them and to say about them. Wouldn't that be nice if that's how every performance review at your job went? You know, you, you were called in for your job review, your annual or bi monthly review or whatever it was, and they only had glowing, positive, wonderful things to say about you? Unfortunately, we know that's not the case. It doesn't always work that way. In fact, um, a, a performance review full of praise is usually a rare thing, but that's how it was for this church with this letter. Uh, nothing Critical or negative at all, just positive encouragement and praise is what they receive from the Lord Jesus. So, with all that background in mind, let's go ahead and dive into the text together. Revelation two, eight through eleven, starting with verse eight. The Lord Jesus once again dictating to John, and he says this: right to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and we've already established that's right to the pastor entrusted with this church, thus says the first and the last, that's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, which, by the way, was abject poverty. They were destitute, the church here in Smyrna, because part of their persecution was economic. They were fired from jobs. They were uh, kept from getting the economic relief and support that others would have gotten. I know, Jesus said, I I know as the one who knows all things, I know your affliction, personally, specifically. I know your poverty, how, how deep that poverty goes. But, you are rich. I know your external poverty, and it's bad. I know what you're dealing with physically. I know all the circumstances that are surrounding your situation. And and it's rough, but I want you to know something else. I know that underneath of all that, you're very rich. There's a legend from the time of the Renaissance that a well-known, important man walked with the Pope at the time and was shown all the riches and the beauty of the Vatican. He was just showing off all the ornate decorations and the facilities that the Vatican offered. And allegedly, the Pope told him, we no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. To which the man replied, ah, but neither can you say, rise up and walk. It's better to be a poor church that's really rich rather than a rich church that's really poor. It's better to be a poor church that's really rich rather than a rich church that's really poor. Because million-dollar budgets and multi-million-dollar facilities don't automatically equal the blessing and the work of God. Sometimes they do. I'm not saying that they they never equal that. But let's not be deceived into thinking that external success and external wealth equals the blessing and the favor and the, the mighty working of God. Because that's not always true. It's just not always true. And here's the other thing to keep in mind. God loves to use the insignificant to do significant things. We've got to remember that. It's, it's very easy, believe me, I know, as a pastor, it's very easy, just in the context of, of church, to look at all these other churches, even around our, in our own area, and around the country, and around the world, and to see... You know, building after building, all these incredible facilities and resources and, and all these elaborate events and programs and everything that, that they've got going on. And to look at that and to say, wow, what it must be like to be part of a church like that. And hey, if, if God is in all that and if He is doing it all and they are seeking Him and being obedient to Him and fulfilling the calling He's given to them and He's doing all that, then great. More power to them, literally. But if not, then all that stuff, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. And will all be burned up like the wood, hay, and stubble that it is. So we've got to keep our perspective right. And that's really what Jesus was saying to the church here. He's saying, I know that you have poverty. I'm not denying that. You you are experiencing great poverty as part of your affliction, as part of your persecution. They're hitting your wallets along with your bodies. I get it. I know it. It's rough. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what I see. I want you you to see the rich church that you really are. then he goes on, second part of verse 9. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, you know, the chosen people of God, those who say, oh yeah, we're God's people, who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, as was often the case, here with Smyrna, the Jewish leaders of the city aligned themselves With the Roman authorities against the Christians, and they were participating in the persecution of those that were part of the way, part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus said would happen. Jesus promised this. He said, Those that persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Those that hated me, they're going to hate you too. And specifically, he was talking about the Jewish leaders to his disciples. He said, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be taken to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. I'll rise again. I'm going to return to my father. I'm going to leave you here because you've got work to do. You're going to proclaim the gospel and I'm going to use you to build the kingdom. But as you do that, know this, those who persecuted me, the Jewish authorities, leaders, they're going to persecute you too. It's going to happen. And and here is proof of that. It's, It's really what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans 2, 28 through 29, he says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, or a real Jew, or someone who's truly uh, aligned with God, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, that Thing that set them apart, that outward sign of, of an inward pure heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So these Christians at Smyrna, they certainly, even if they were Gentiles, they were true Jews because of what was true of their heart. And he's saying, I I know all these Jewish people around you that, you know, they say, oh, you know, we are the elect of God. We're the chosen people of God because we're Jews. He said, no, 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 That's, that's not the case. They're showing their true colors. Then Jesus continues his statements to the church of Smyrna, verse 10. And he says this, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. Think of what Jesus told Peter. He said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, and once you return, strengthen your brothers. It's kind of the same concept here that Jesus is saying to this church. He says, look, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you, it's it's going to happen. You will, he continues, and you will experience affliction. And then he gets very specific, for ten days. There's been all sorts of debate and discussion about what ten days really means here. Uh, is this metaphorical? Is this symbolic? But really, most likely it means literally ten days. A, a period of ten days. You're going to have intense, very specific, and ongoing affliction and persecution in the form of imprisonment and and even maybe torture, which was likely for 10 days. So Jesus said, I I know it's bad and I love you enough to tell you the truth. It's going to get worse. You're going to have even more trouble. You're going to have even more trial. You're going to have even more persecution in the form of, of this imprisonment that's going to be energized by your enemy, by the enemy, Satan himself. But there's going to be an end date to it. It's not indefinite. It's going to be 10 days. So hang in there. Be strong. It's 10 days. And and here's what that showed the church of Smyrna, And, and it's what it shows all of us too, that Satan, powerful as he may be, Satan always has to submit to God's authority and to His timetable. Satan doesn't just have a blank check in which to operate. He's on a short leash. He still answers to His Maker. Keep that in mind. Sometimes it's easy to think maybe that's not true, that Satan just has free reign to do whatever he wants, however he wants. That's never, ever the case. And here's the other thing. God always uses what He allows Satan to do to bring about His own perfect purpose and to get glory from it. So the joke's really on Satan. Always is. The church at Smyrna was a good example of what Jesus said as part of His Sermon on the Mount Recorded in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12 specifically, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed, Jesus said when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of Me, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, And really, really hear this, church, because, man, this this so applies to us. Indeed, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That pretty much clears it all up, doesn't it? That doesn't really leave anyone out. Mean all means all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. In other words, all who desire to live for Jesus, all who live out their Christian life, all who say yes, I am in Christ, and who live that out, they're going to be persecuted in some form, in some way. And, and it doesn't say specifically what that's going to look like or how that's going to manifest or how long that will be. But what is assured is that in, at some point in your life, if you are faithfully, consistently living your life for Jesus Christ and in Him, then you can expect some type of affliction and persecution going to happen and that was not just true for the church in the first century by any means it's been going on in every century and that's definitely still being proven true today right now and church listen it's not as far away as we might be tempted to think recently Recently, there are numerous examples in Canada, just our neighbor to the north, in Canada, about obvious, I mean, no question, intentional persecution of the church there. And it's been under the guise of uh, health, safety, and concern, uh, which has been clearly proven that uh, now, I mean, right where this is happening is is not necessary, but it's still happening under that guise. I mean, where literal fences are being erected around the church buildings where the church gathers, where um, law enforcement has been stationed at the churches to bar the church from coming into what is even their own property, where numerous pastors have literally been arrested. Uh, recently, one, one pastor was in jail for thirty five days because he held an outdoor gathering that which was still in line with all the ordinances in the area in Edmonton for any sort of large gathering i mean it was it was completely in line with what the city's ordinance was and the state ordinance, the territory ordinance, and yet that gathering, because it was Quote, religious in nature or spiritual, that was targeted, and the the pastor was was hauled off and sentenced. And there's been other examples of that, um, numerous examples in, in Canada, and there's even been some pretty strong uh, strong examples of it happening in our own country, California, as an obvious example. I, I think probably a lot of you have seen what's happened over the last year in California. So my point in all that is just to say, uh, we're not immune. We're not immune to it. And, I mean, we're seeing it happening around us. And maybe, maybe we'll see it here too. We haven't yet. And, and don't, don't deceive yourselves into thinking that we have. I mean, where you are living right now, we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't become. Okay? Uh, let me just clear that up right away. It, we've been so incredibly privileged, so incredibly blessed Uh, to be exempt from that experience that so many of our brothers and sisters, not just around the world, but even in our own country are experiencing. So two things on that before I move on. Number one, praise the Lord for that. Thank Him for that. Number two, pray, pray for our brothers and sisters who continue to be persecuted, even worse than what I described in Canada or California, far worse around the world. Pray for the persecuted church around the world, but, but pray for the, the persecution that's even so close to home. Pray for those experiencing that. Pray that they uh, hold up and, and are strengthened and grow from that, because that's always the goal of persecution, that the church grows. Here's, here's something else, though, close to home and to keep in mind personally. The danger for the unpersecuted church is that we can be defined by our freedom more than by our devotion to our Savior. And it's so easy to do. And it's so subtle, where you don't even realize you're doing it. But because we have enjoyed such immense freedoms for so long, in this country, longer than the church has experienced at any other time in history or any other place on earth. Because that has been the church's experience in America, what it is so easy to do is to rest on and to trust in and to depend on all of those freedoms and rights rather than our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Don't do it. Don't allow the enemy to do that to you, church, because that's a tactic and strategy of of his just like anything else. And right along with that, lack of persecution contributes to an increase in spiritual laziness. Lack of persecution can produce a very real and deep apathy in our hearts. It it doesn't have to. I'm not saying it absolutely has to happen. It doesn't have to, but it often does. And history shows that. And if you would look, if you take a step back and you look at the state, the general state and the general condition of the church in America and even zero in farther and you look at the state of the church in West Virginia or the, the state of the church in Raleigh County or southern West Virginia, maybe more generalized, then you could see this as a contributing factor. It's not the only factor, but I believe it's a contributing factor. The fact that we've never really seen true opposition, true affliction, true persecution that we have to stand up strong in the face of, that we have to come to grips with and ask ourselves, is what I am saying that I believe really what I believe? Is what I'm professing what I truly am? See, that's what persecution forces. Persecution weeds out the pretenders. And it forces what is real to come to the surface. And when that doesn't happen for centuries and centuries, or decades after decades, the spiritual heart grows cold and callous and lazy and apathetic. We've got to guard against it. Church, we don't have to let persecution be what causes our our spiritual laziness to to fade and our apathy to go away we don't have to let it and let's not let it let let's not be the church that it takes persecution to wake us up let's wake up before the persecution comes let's be proactive not reactive amen back to the text Jesus continues in His statements to the Smyrna church, and He says this, Be faithful. Remember, He just said, you're going to have affliction. More affliction than you've had already. You're going to have continuing persecution. Intense persecution for ten days. But here's what He says in relation to that. Be faithful to the point of death. Be faithful to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. That's literally in the Greek, Stephanos. Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. Um, it's given to the winner of a race or or another kind of athletic contest. Think, think the Olympic Games, the, the original Olympic Games, uh, which was another thing that Smyrna was known for, by the way. They were a city that hosted a lot of games, and they were famous for that. So uh, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the victor's crown. You remain faithful even at the cost of your life, and I I personally will place the victor's crown on your head. Think about that. And, and that's not something that was specifically, or or exclusively, I should say, promised to the Christians in Smyrna. The one... The one... Oh, the one that wore a crown of thorns for us, will give the crown of life to us. What a thought, right? Think about that. The very Savior that went to the cross and, and had the crown of thorns put on His head and into His scalp where blood flowed, He's going to look at you and me if we are faithful to Him in our lives and through our lives and, and even to the point of losing our life if that comes. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here, Here is the Stephanos. Here is the crown of victory that I am placing on your head. What, what a thought. And we also know later in the book of Revelation that anyone who receives that kind of crown or any other crown of honor, guess what we're going to do with it? We're not going to hang on to it And hold it tightly and draw attention to it, we're going to throw it at the feet of the one who gave it to us. Because it's all about Him. It's all about Him. And then, lastly, but not least, verse 11, Jesus concludes His statements to this precious, precious church. And He says, This, let anyone, let anyone, that's you and me included. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the Holy Spirit is taking what Jesus is saying to John and He's applying it to the, the hearers of this, of this letter and these statements. That's what every, every letter just about is, is ended with. It's, it's this challenge to hear what the Spirit says through what Jesus is saying through John. Let him hear, let him listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. The second death is the eternal death, the second death in hell, in eternal torment, and eternal separation from God. That's what's referred to and meant uh, by the second death. And he's saying the one who conquers, which every true believer does they're never going to be harmed or they never have to fear the second death. Church that promise and sure hope is why everyone really in Christ can say with Paul as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15:55, "O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting?" And the answer is it's gone. It's been swallowed up, he says, in victory, in Christ. That's what is your reality if you're in Christ. Praise God. Now, all that being said, some good questions to ask ourselves with all this in mind, everything we've just considered. Some good questions to ask would be What do we depend on? What do we depend on as we live out our Christian life here and now? Our freedoms, our rights, our comforts, and our conveniences? Is that what we rest on? Is that what we depend on? And another really good question related to that, completely connected, is. What will we do if those things get taken from us? I mean, it's happening around us. hasn't happened to us yet, praise God, but it could. Probably just a matter of time, just to be honest. So what will we do if those things get taken from us? Will we still worship? Will we still gather together in some way, even if it looks entirely different? Will we still serve our great Savior? Will we still consider Him to be great and believe that? Will we still give witness to the gospel? Will we still believe in its power? Those are good questions to ask, I think. And may the answer to that be yes. May the faithfulness and the perseverance of the church at Smyrna be found in this church as well. May that mark us. May the Lord that found Smyrna faithful, may He find us faithful as well. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the example of Smyrna and their faithfulness under extreme difficulty and circumstance. Thank You for the power of their testimony and their perseverance in the face of persecution that we can't even fathom. And Father, I pray that we would be a church, this church would be a church that is faithful like they were faithful to you, to your Son. May we be a church that is proactive, not reactive. May we be awake and alive and strong and not have to experience persecution for those things to be true. May we be genuine and powerful in our witness, in our commitment to You, before persecution, so that we would be faithful during persecution. May You, and may Your Son, and Your Spirit Look on us and say, well done. And may the world look in and see a genuine commitment, no matter what they hurl at us. Thank you for your faithfulness, and may we be faithful to you in response. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.